I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities. And we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Emily Harnett, a writer and commentator critic who has studied at Yale University and here at Penn, whose amazing essays include one published in The Atlantic called The Subtle Genius of Elena Ferrante's Bad Book Covers, and another blockbuster piece called How the Best Commencement Speech of All Time Was Bad for Literature, referring, of course, to David Foster Wallace at Kenyon College who is a longtime affiliate of the Kelly Writers House and is currently a teaching assistant for the fifth year in the free open course called ModPo. And by Siobhan Phillips, a teacher at Dickinson College, critic, scholar, poet, author of The Poetics of the Everyday, Creative Reception in Modern American Verse, Columbia University Press, and among many other publications, an essay on editions of Marianne Moore, another essay on gin and gender. I like that one, Siobhan. Maybe you'll tell us about that. Poems in many magazines and venues, including a Dickinsonian poem published in Prelude called My Life Had Stood, and whose current book project, is on kinship in literature in the 1960s. And by Joe Massey, who comes to us today from the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts, author of Areas of Fog, Shearsman 2009, At the Point, Shearsman 2011, To Keep Time, Omnidawn 2014, and whose 2015 book, Ill Locality, Ill Locality, uh, received a glowing New York Times book review praising its splendor, that's a quote, its dry humor, that's a quote, and it's true. And it's evocation of the ambitious brevities of Dickinson, Eigner, Niedeker, and Williams, and Sid Gorman. So, Emily, you have actually... Hi, Emily. Hi, Al. You have a new piece as of this recording called... Uh, what is it? It just came out in uh, LitHub. Something about women and... I, don't, I, I didn't title it, but um, it's about women and idleness. Favorite topics, I guess. Are you pro-women in idleness? Yeah, yeah. You are. I know you are. <laughs> um, also, there's a great piece called When Art Cannot Console Us in Death, also at Lit Hub. <laughs> Siobhan, did I get your newest doings correctly? Yeah. Thank you. Great. Fantastic. And this is your first time to the writer's house? Yes. First, but not last. And Dickinson College is not far, really. I know. I know. It's close it's by. Great, great little school. How far from the... Uh, southern Pennsylvania border is Dickinson, maybe a half hour? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. It's close, right? To Maryland, is it? Yeah, it's it's um, actually, you know, you can get to Baltimore even more quickly than you can get to Philadelphia. Yeah. Well, welcome. Uh, welcome. And I hope this is the first of many visits. And Joe, so great to have you back. Thanks, Al. For maybe a third or fourth time to the writer's house. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to see you. Well, we're here today, the four of us, to talk about a poem by Kate Colby called I Mean. In the book of that title, published by Ugly Duckling Press in 2015, this poem runs for 72 pages, and nearly every one of its lines, I think maybe all but two, uh, begins with that phrase, I Mean. We'll discuss the opening pages of the poem, the first 12 pages to be exact, 
Kate Colby's Penn Sound page includes a complete recording of I Mean, recorded in 43 minutes by Mary Kim Arnold in Pawtucket, Rhode Island on July 27, 2016. So we'll hear the first three minutes and eight seconds. Here now is Kate Colby performing the opening of I Mean. I mean, I mean to say, I mean I keep meaning to, I mean amending, I mean correcting, I mean qualifying, I mean collecting, I mean X plus X plus X and so forth, I mean all possible values, I mean adding, I mean and also, I mean pile-ups happen when you can't see where you're going. I mean where you are. I mean your hand in front of your face. I mean my hand. I mean if that's all I can see. I mean if that's all I'm looking at. I mean that's not all. I mean there is no end. I mean this isn't the beginning. I mean only means. I mean blow the house down with breathlessness. I mean a house of breathlessness. I mean the walls are braced against themselves. I mean brace yourself. I mean to take the house down with its own components. I mean throw the whole deck at it. I mean two by fours and oven mitts. I mean rocks, hucking them at walls of rocks. I mean self-healing walls. I mean with insipid pox. I mean BB dings and street signs. I mean bullet holes and stop signs. I mean to riddle. I mean all signs point to yes. I mean eyelids are designed to admit some light. I mean sound. I mean boom. I mean faster than gravity. I mean I am not equal to the work. I mean I'm over my head. I mean hovering. I mean levitating. I mean light as a feather, wide as a plane. I mean fight as a feather, infinitesimally. I mean, I'm going to talk about it. I mean, talk about it by talking about talking about it. I mean, write about it. I mean, scrape it all towards me with the edge of my hand. I mean, like a spray of crumbs. I mean, pile. I mean, to pile up and get on top of. I mean, for the prospect. I mean, for the pee beneath the mattress. I mean, to feel the ceiling. I mean to figure it like a mime. I mean just imagine it. I mean kiss it. I mean I'm already running out of air. I mean steam. I mean fire. I mean fight it. I mean feed. I mean with fire. I mean fire is not finite, only fuel. I mean light is not finite, only illumination. I mean things to illuminate. I mean to throw shadows. I mean, I have an important question. Is this important? Can we, the four of us, start by um, inventorying the various different meanings of I mean? Let's just make a list and see where we go. Siobhan, what's the first one? Well, um, this is a poem about meanings. Um, So mean, of course, means what it means. Uh, we're talking about what you intend, but we're also talking about what you will. I, I mean to 
what you intend, as in will, I will this. I will. Mm-hmm. I will do this. Mm-hmm. Joe, yeah. you want to add a couple? Uh, reading the poem, what res- the the form of meaning that resonates for me throughout is the 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 idea of talking to kind of be coherent, to make something coherent, to make it cohere. So interestingly, in that context, when I mean is used in everyday speech, it's often a filler uh, conjunction. It's a way of saying, that is to say, or in other words, I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah? That's yeah, what she you meant? turns that on its head over and over again, turns it in a hundred different directions. So I'm going to ask Emily to add to this list, but while I'm doing that, will you take, find, see if you can find mm-hmm. a couple of instances of that? Emily, can you add to the list of senses or variations? Yeah, um, to me, uh, the word mean in this context seemed to strike me also as a means of doing something that she uses. You know, the word I mean um, as a means of approaching uh, a acute, like just a wild kind of amplitude of things. And um, in the essays at the back, uh, she talks about um, seeing her poetry as having almost a kind of blunt force quality of, of striking through something. Um, in that sense, I mean uh, seems like an instrument to have that kind of mean-like capacity. That's great. So we've maybe come up with five, and I'll just add one more, and then we'll turn to Joe for some examples. But um, this is a version of what I just said, but the way she pulls this off by this constraint of every line starts with I mean, she creates a kind of variations, poetics. So some of the, I mean, some of my favorite poems, modern poems, are in the variation style where things are morphing and varying. Um, Think of, since Wallace Stevens is always in the front of my mind, um, the man with the blue guitar is at least the first 10 cantos of the 33 are variations. And I see her using I mean as variations. And uh, also maybe that would might be 6A, but 6B would be th- uh, the use of repetitive prelude or prefix phrasing to create a trance-like sound which is so far from mean as meaning signification. All right, Joe, uh, can you give us some examples? Yeah, on page 11, there's, there's a, there's a, there are a few lines back to back about the idea of talking. I mean, I'm going to talk about it. I mean, talk about it by talking about it, talking about it. I mean, write about it. I mean, scrape it all towards me with the edge of my hand, which I also read as... Uh, it follows. I mean, write about it, and it's kind of a writing, or an I kind of the act of writing, scraping things toward you with the edge of your hand. Siobhan, can we continue spinning variations? Absolutely. Of I mean? So, I'm struck by the sort of colloquial function of I mean that we were talking about is often not clarifying. It's as we say, simply filler, or even obfuscating or covering over an obscurity. Um, but there's also, in repeating I mean, there is th- there is this kind of will toward clarity. I think that's what Emily was talking about, this kind of blunt force will toward clarity at the same time that we have this incantatory effect. So um, when the poem takes idioms seriously, I think it's sort of performing some of those the pileup of meanings, and that pileup is right there in the passage Joe just read. So we have at least two categories of this. One is synonymizing. I mean amending. I mean correcting. I mean qualifying. I mean collecting. 
So you get variations, but you get synonymizing, you get like, I'm trying to get this right. But then you get these meta statements where I mean becomes almost hilarious and ironic. Like I'm a poet and I'm starting every line with I mean. So I obviously am trying to signify here. Um, Emily, can you point to the metapoetic? Um, I think uh, the line that Joe just read, I mean amending. In the process of completing the phrase, I mean the very kind of meaning of meaning ends up, up changing and an emendation is a correction. It's also a kind of disavowal of a previous meaning. So the meaning is always shifting and changing and unstable. Yeah. Later she says, I mean, I'm just saying, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. something. But in this poem, just saying yeah. becomes a meaning. And it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, fire. I mean, fight it. I mean, feed. I mean, with fire. She's doing a lot there. Can we unpack that? Um, so you go from fire to with fire, because fight is in there. You get the idiom. She's also just playing on sounds. Mm-hmm. Well, I like how when she says, I mean fire, the I mean fire, well, in that statement, literally fire, and then the meaning of fire changes in the following lines. I mean fight it. That's another meaning of fire, Something to something that's encroaching, something that's dangerous. And then I mean feed, you know, it's something that you stoke something that you, you know, that you feed, that you help grow. I mean, fire is not finite, only fuel. Fuel, that's a whole other meaning. So, like Siobhan was saying, and like we're all saying, this poem, just the, the idea of meaning continuously unfurls in countless directions. It's really an endless poem. Those And those idioms and even cliches or common expressions, common usages are in a sense kind of meanings that she plucks or takes and then further spins into meaning. Um, I'm just thinking about the passage on page 10 when she says, I mean self-healing walls, I mean with insipid pox, I mean BB dings and street signs, I mean bullet holes and stop signs, I mean to riddle. And so there's a, we can see a kind of chain of association in which the poem is thinking about bullets and then different kinds of bullets and then something being riddled with bullets, but that becomes a a riddling of language as well. So these phrases and idioms are possibilities of meaning that she's uh, pushing is not the right word. Trying out. Trying out. It's positive to me, Emily. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's positive for you, but it's positive for me because cl- clearly there she's thinking about an image of walls, I mean rocks hucking them at walls of rocks, and then we get this riffing on, uh, you know, damage and vandalism, right? But all signs point to yes. Why? I mean, how how is this positive? And what does that have to do with the way the poem is written? Boy, that's a tough question. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that happens to me sometimes. <laughs> Um, no, this poem also does feel positive to me, I think, because, um, you know, in these lines, I, I mean I fight it, I mean feed, I mean with fire. Those at first didn't really strike me um, as an emendation as so, much, as so much as a kind of erasure, right? Because those meanings at first seem so kind of um, wildly opposed to each other, so, uh, you know, very different. Um, but um, eventually they resolve on this line, I mean with fire. You see um, how kind of rifling through that language seems to arrive at, at something um, 
precise, or at least one meaning that she does really mean. And the very fact that um, she means so many of these things has discarded none of none of these things, even though their intention uh, seems extremely affirmative and an affirmation of every kind of meaning. Joe? I just love the, I mean, BB dings and street signs. A sign has implicit meaning or it wouldn't be a sign. It's saying, it's directing somewhere. There's, she's meaning signification. She's meaning, and, and it's dinged with BBs. So it's, that's just her, another sort of a meta moment, I guess, or metaphorical and meta moment of how meaning is always changing, breaking down, becoming something else, damage too. Later in the poem, there are, I'm just thinking about this joyful, positive tone of the poem. And she also meditates or means um, about the poem's ongoingness, which I think is part of the positive feeling in the poem and the poem's both uns- uncertainty but also joy in that uncertainty or, or multiple certainties. One can always mean more. One can always say, put the subjective pronoun singular in front of the word mean and say anything because poets are supposed to mean. Right. So this invites her to um, run through every stop sign, as it were, even ones with bullet holes in them. Precisely. There are, and there are always finer gradations of meaning if we're actually speaking as we are now and can say, oh, I mean, not really that. Oh, I mean, not exactly that. I mean something else. And it's oh, you're clarifying and trying to get to that fixed meaning that we're all seeking and never really finding, which I think gets back to that m- pee under the mattresses, under the pile What of is mattresses. the line about the pee under the mattress? That's I on... mean for the pee beneath the mattress. Not I mean the pee beneath the mattress, but I mean for the pee. This is such a, as you say, ongoing uh, project that pee under the mattress, which is associated with, as you just said, a kind of precise uh, attentiveness to something that's slightly off, would seem hilariously ironic given that she's sprawling. Yeah? I mean, what's that doing there? Well, um, in some sense, the point is the pile, not the pee. I mean, write about it. I mean, scrape it all towards me with the edge of my hand. I mean, like a spray of crumbs. I mean pile. I mean to pile up and get on top of. I mean for the prospect. I mean for the pee beneath the mattress. I mean to feel the ceiling. I mean to figure it like a mime. I mean just imagine it. I mean kiss it. I mean I'm already running out of air. I mean steam. I mean fire. I mean fight it. I mean feed. I mean with fire. A, a, a general question about the constraint. It doesn't actually feel like a constraint, but starting every line with I mean is technically a constraint. Uh, if you were to say to somebody, I'm sure you did actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going to Philly to talk about a poem of 70-some pages in which every line starts with I mean. Now, how do you justify, how do you pull that off? How does Kate Colby pull it off? Not every constraint, not every uh, repeated prefix is going to work. Kate makes it work because she has such a wide-ranging mind, I mean, evident in the poem, that she's able to gather all of these many versions of meaning and she uses her wit and humor and punning as well to make it interesting. So it just keeps moving, just like meaning itself continues to move, but she 
helps it along with her brilliance. Does she, Siobhan or Emily, does she wink at us at times that she knows she's kind of stuck in this thing and she's going to have to fight her way out of it? And if so, how? How does she do that? I think the line that you mentioned, Siobhan, I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, it's already a, a completely self-referential poem, but the self-reference It's self-referential of, because you have to just say it. <laughs> of it's course. Worth saying. Um, because it uh, it refers back to the process of articulation. Every time. Over, exactly. <laughs> Insistently. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, Go ahead. no. Um, no uh, yeah, so if the poem, you know, formally the poem as a whole refers back to its process of articulation, that line refers back to the specific line's process of articulation. I am... Um, Forget what question I'm answering. <laughs> <laughs> Siobhan? Yeah, I think that's, I think all of that, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm, I also think that there is a, the poem is full of energy, and I think the constraint doesn't feel like a constraint because it's, it's just always generating more. Um, but there is also a, a kind of, of diffidence sometimes in, in this poem. That may also not be quite the right word, but I'm thinking of that line that's repeated in which she says, I mean, I am not equal to the work, and of course, I that, mean, I'm over my head. Mm-hmm. That's a great moment of looking at us saying, you know, yeah. I, I got myself deep into this, and yeah, the, in the world of list poems, and, and there was a period where list poems, via Kenneth Koch and others, became a way to teach children how to write poetry. This is not technically a list poem, but it does something that Kenneth Koch taught a lot of people how to do, which is to just pick some repeated prefix and just write. Yeah. So does there, is this have a cousin relationship to that? Um, is it not a list poem? It starts out as a list poem. I mean, when you first, when you read the first, for me, when I read the first few pages, I'm very aware of the repeated opening phrase, I mean, I mean. But as I continue to read the poem, the I mean kind of it almost starts to vanish or it, beca- it kind of falls into the background and then all of her, the, the rest of the text that attempts to explicate a kind of meaning becomes, you know, that's what I start becoming absorbed in. The I gets lost and even the mean, what the meaning of mean is gets lost. I'm just trapped in the poem itself. Are you saying <laughs> that the phrase I mean begins to lose its meaning? Yes, Exactly. Isn't that kind of complicated? <laughs> well, on page nine, we have, I mean only means. So in that sense, I mean is a means to an end. Mm. That a, is no ending. There's a seventh yeah. meaning of um, meaning. Yeah, which is inconclusive. I mean to say. I mean I keep meaning to. I mean amending. I mean correcting. I mean qualifying. I mean collecting. I mean X plus X plus X and so forth. I mean all possible values. I mean adding. I mean and also. I mean pile-ups happen when you can't see where you're going. I mean where you are. I mean your hand in front of your face. I mean my hand. I mean if that's all I can see. I mean if that's all I'm looking at. I mean, that's not all. If uh, Emily, if we took all the prefixes out, this were a writing exercise, and then in the end it became just a list of what it is she means. We took I mean out. The poem would be very different. Mm-hmm. What would it be? Um, 
you know, I don't know, but my my sense was, in some sense, I it shares a certain kind of formal constraint with um, a list poem, but it doesn't really feel like a list in the sense that um, the lines don't really feel fully uh, paratactic in that way, that there seems to be some type of forward progression, that mm-hmm. she's moving forward, if not always in sense, then um, in, in space, it seems. She's interacting with um, geographies and, and buildings and in going somewhere, mm-hmm. even if we can't always tell where she's going. I think I want to press back slightly against that and say that I mean, for me, functions most interestingly as a conjunction. Mm. Isn't it nice to think that poets have the license to take any phrase and repeat it enough at the beginning of a line to create a kind of alternative to and? And in that yeah. way, it is paratactic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it is listy. It is catalogy. And it, in the Whitmanian sense, and I hadn't for, until the second thought about Whitman, but that incantatory quality, the word you used earlier, Siobhan, um, the incantation has to do with the repetition of the first part of the, of the line, which in Whitman or Ginsburg sometimes is just and. And that is in itself the glue that holds together otherwise unrelated things. Joe, what do you think of that thing I just said, which seems a little, a bit of a stretch? Well, ever since the, since my last you know, talking about the refrain, I mean, and how it kind of loses its meaning, I, and you mentioned, what if you took away I mean? Um, the poem wouldn't work, though. It wouldn't work without, the, without that repeated phrase. So it does have meaning. It, it's a stabilizing, it has a stabilizing effect. If without it, the lines would just kind of fall, through, fall apart. I'll just read a few lines without the I mean, since we'll see what oh. happens, okay? Mork and Mindy, Mizen Abim, playing people playing people, sets within sets of themselves. I dream about myself. I've canceled myself out. I'm okay with that. And that's, um, can I say, and with all due respect to Kate Colby, that's sort of more experimental, but what? Did I pick a good passage for doing what I did or what? What's going on there, Siobhan? Uh, well, I think it is a great passage. Um, I mean, Mork and Mindy and Mizen Abim is great. <laughs> but it's also a great passage because they, there, there was two lines that in, in the uh, original, the non-Al edited version, yeah. um, it's I mean I dream about myself. I mean I've canceled myself out. So what you're just doing is sort of canceling out the I that starts every line and the me- and the I mean that starts every line. But I do think there's something about I mean that's a little bit different than a than an and than a conjunction. Um, and I do think it is something about um, the connection of connotation, intention, will, and some kind of agency and, and subjectivity that is restless and dissatisfied and wants to cancel itself out and keeps going. Yeah, the, uh, Anne doesn't seem quite quite right, but maybe um, I mean is evacuated in meaning in the sense that it becomes a kind of grammar. So not exactly a, a kind of word, but still a way of structuring sense, which doesn't really have a kind of one-to-one correlation with the way that words um, signify, but the way that grammar itself kind of signifies in a um, background but still structuring way. It's just interesting what happens to a fr- like Mork and Mindy. Yeah. And then you put I mean in front of it, and Mork and Mindy suddenly becomes very complicated <laughs> yeah. and 
different. And it's uh, so I, I withdraw mean, <laughs> the suggestion that it functions like a conjunction, but I want it to be a, re- a distant relative of a conjunction because what it is is a conjunction that infuses either subjectivity or iron- ironic subjectivity. And, and conjunctions don't do that typically, <laughs> except that in Whitman, sometimes they do. Let's face it, because he's turning from one thing yeah. to another in his world. He's observing and he's connecting them and he's the glue that connects them. And I think I mean here is the glue that connects them. Every poet subjectifies, subjectifies, oh, that's a terrible word, makes subjects and intersubjectivities out of what they see and can put in a poem. Right. And I think probably William James would agree with you that there is there is more to conjunctions than normal grammar indicates in conjunctions, of course. And I think poetry and a certain tradition of American poetry that Kate Colby is playing with especially loves that power of the poetic I, line. I really like poems, particularly long poems, that make me think all the time about what poetry can do, that we didn't, so many poems have been written, and yet here's one that teaches me yet a new way of doing what poetry can do. Why don't we, and we could talk a long time about this, and we've only really focused on the first few pages of this long poem. Why don't we go around and each of us say one more thing, something that you came here today wanting to say but didn't have a chance yet so far. So, Emily, you have a final thought? Sure. Um, Yeah, I really like this poem. I I like that it suggests this kind of freedom to start over, over and over and over again, to kind of never stop returning to um, the kind of the beginning of a moment, the beginning of an attempt and still arrive somewhere. Um, It would seem that those kind of two intentions or two uh, processes would be contradictory, but I think this poem shows that um, they really do work, that you can uh, infinitely refine what you want to say and discard the things you don't want to say and still come up with something that feels really whole. That's a really good observation. It puts me in mind of the first time I read some of the language writers, um, something Lynn Hijinian would try to do or Ron Silliman with uh, uh, the sentences even connected in this way or Bob Perlman's listy poems such as um, Chronic Meanings actually makes me think of this. So, And yet it's very fresh. Siobhan, final thought? I think most of it's been said. I, I would love to talk more about the kind of kinetics of this poem and, and the Will you please? Well, I'm I just think the the movement of it is terrific. I think this poem is sort of is is choreographed in a way. One of the reasons it's not a list to me is it's really going places and all all sorts of places. And we've talked about that already, but I like that very much. I also like the sense of work in this poem and what that meaning itself is work. I love that idea and how it reflects on both meaning and work as words. Great. Joe, final thought? I too, Al, like that the poem gives a sense of, for me as a poet, of permission that anything can be written about, even meaning, which doesn't, ultimately, what does it mean? But she keeps the poem moving, even through that kind of acknowledgement of the instability of meaning itself. And I, I find that really... Uh, to, for lack of a better word, inspiring. Agreed. Um, my final thought is simply to look back at the opening lines, which are kind of aesthetic prologue, um, a statement of aesthetic principle. I mean to say, I mean I keep meaning to, I mean amending, I mean correcting, I mean qualifying. She's saying how it is that this thing is going to proceed. And the first two 
lines are fragments. The others could be fragments, but could also stand as grammatically complete sentences. But what she's doing here is telling us how this thing is going to go and somewhat erasing what comes before and somewhat leaving it all to stand as evidence of her thinking. All right, great. Well, we um, like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all of you if you're quick, to gather a little something poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Joe, I think you have something in mind. I'm ready, yeah. Okay. I've, I've been reading Peter Gizzi's new book, Archaeophonics, and, uh, which I believe is the... This, the retrieval of sound uh, from the ether and from like buried sound. And um, it's just a beautiful, haunting uh, book. It, it's individual poems and sequences, but it reads like one whole gesture, one whole movement. I think it's a really amazing book. Just came out. All right. And say the name again Archaeophonics. Yeah, cool. Okay. Emily? Um, yeah, well, this fall, as in every, um, the past previous five falls, I've been a TA and happy participant in ModPo, and that's always... And what is ModPo? Gosh, Al, it's crazy that you don't know, but um, <laughs> ModPo is a, it's a 10-week, right? A 10-week, massive, open, online course, but at this point, just massive, online, open community of people who love this weird kind of, yeah, this weird, exciting, contradictory poetry. We've met a lot of friends. We were just today talking about a, a poet who likes to translate her um, Azeri, she's from Azerbaijan, uh, poems into, into her own English. And she's there in Modpo trying to make connections with English language poets. And if we hadn't done Modpo, we never would have met her, obviously. Siobhan, gather some paradise. I've... Um I was recommended by a friend to read some of Dion Brand, a Canadian poet. And so I went back to her earlier work, which is not exactly new. It was published in 1990, but it's called um, No Language is Neutral. And I've been really, really enjoying that. So I would recommend that if you, like me, hadn't yet read it. Fantastic. Um, well, I'm going to gather a little paradise, and it's Nathaniel Mackey. Um, we've done a poem talk on Nathaniel Mackey. Nathaniel Mackey is a spring 2017 Kelly Writers House Fellow, I'm proud to say. Um, but Mackie has um, pretty eloquently and insistently kept reminding us that poetry is music, poetry is sound. Uh, and he has a wonderful blurb for the Peter Gizzy book, Archaeophonics. And I'm going to read you that blurb in honor of Nate's uh, appreciation of uh, poets who are interested in the sound of words. Archaeophonics. A digging of and into sound, yes, but with a weathering, a chastening of foot at all points, wistful and surly by turns. Mr. Gizzy treats eggshell air, eggshell earth, trapes never not shadowed by collapse, as if to sound some depth, some corrected tilt, or some righted something gone under. The poem's an evaporative track left in its wake. The floor goes unfixed and moving, he writes at one point, hewing to it, even so, and all the more beautifully high-stepping. Gosh. We've all read blurbs, and we've written blurbs, and what Nate Mackey there is, it seems to me, is doing is not only praising Peter Gizzi appropriately, but he's um, reminding us what 
poetry is about. That's, that's really great. Well, that's all the meaning we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks to my guests, Emily Harnett, Siobhan Phillips, and Joseph Massey, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Adelaide Powell. Thanks to you both. And to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, Zach and I and others will have gone on the road and really way off the road to Bolinas, California, where Stephen Radcliffe, Julia Block, who will be visiting out there, and Joanne Kiger will talk about Philip Whalen's poem, Life at Bolinas. I hope you can all come to Bolinas for that, but if not, stay tuned for that. And this is Al Philreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of the ongoing series called Poem Talk.